All right. Well, welcome to the Missionary District podcast. I am Deacon Amos. And I'm Father Rob. And today we are going to continue our conversation about holy orders. So last time we talked about the biblical and historical foundation of holy orders, as well as the sacramental character of it. And today we're going to touch on how this practice preserves unity and communicates the gospel. And again, these are mostly things that have convinced me personally that this is a beneficial practice. Other people might find other things convincing. Uh, But for me, I always want to ask whether a practice is in line with the message of the gospel, or maybe more than that, not just is it coherent, but how does it express the gospel? What does it teach me about the gospel? And I also want to know the practical implications, because things like this aren't just theory. So, you know, in addition to biblical and theological and historical reasons, what does this practically do? Why is it practically important, even if it isn't, strictly speaking, biblically or theologically necessary? Right? We said last time that this isn't explicitly commanded in the scriptures, yet it was universally practiced. And so why did the church gravitate towards this model of church governance? Why did the Holy Spirit lead the church in this way? These are great questions. I think, you know, in the past, over the last couple episodes, but even uh, as we've talked about other things, we've talked a little bit about uh, the scandal of division and how denominationalism has normalized divisions in the body of Christ. We don't think about it. We don't really think about the fact that to divide the body is sinful. Right. Uh, This is in direct opposition to the scriptures. But now... We live in a new reality, in a world divided where the church is these many different denominations, and we don't even notice that it's divided anymore. Right. So now, this might make people a little bit uncomfortable, but we believe holy orders is an antidote to that division. It's a tool that practically facilitates unity. As we've mentioned, there really was no other widespread or enduring form of church governance until the time of the Protestant Reformation. And now, 500 years later, I think we can confidently say that alternative forms of church government are not as effective at producing unity. You don't have to look very hard at the Protestant church to see that one of the fruits of rejecting holy orders has been division and doctrinal variation. Approximately 30% of the world's Christians are Protestant, and something like 94% of the world's denominations are Protestant. Wow. Uh, Or if you consider the numbers from the other side, that means that 70% of the world's Christians who are not Protestant form only 6% of the denominations. Right. Those numbers would include Anglicans, of course, but just to make the general point that they're is a lot of division among churches who reject holy orders and not nearly as much among those who do. Right. So I think it's maybe worth asking, and I'll ask this of you, Deacon Amos, what does apostolic succession have to do with unity? Right, yeah, I think that that is the question to ask here. And, you know, when we look in the New Testament, there's... There's a very close relationship between the apostles and the church as a whole. It is 
the apostles who write to congregations to bring encouragement or correction or to expound on matters of doctrine. All of the epistles that we have in the New Testament are written uh, by apostles or people working closely with the apostles. And in every case, it is just taken for granted that the local congregation that they're addressing has some relationship with and responsibility to the whole church, and that they are submitted to the authority of the apostles who are able to address them in the name of the larger body. Mm-hmm. So the apostles represent the church to individual churches. Yeah. And it, it's just universally assumed that obedience to the apostles was a necessary part of belonging in the church. It's absolutely inconceivable that a church could form and remain in any way independent of the apostles or the wider church. It's the it's the apostles that are tangibly holding the body together. Yeah. We see this really vividly in Acts chapter 8, I think. So Philip, who's one of the seven from Acts chapter 6, has preached the gospel to Samaria, and the Samaritans have received the message, and they've been baptized, but something is missing. Someone is missing. These, these new believers did not receive the Holy Spirit. Now, that's, that's a really important point, because that doesn't actually seem to be in line with God's nature. Yeah. So why would God withhold his spirit from them? I think we should ask that question. We're supposed to ask that question when we read the Bible. That should shock us. Yeah. And we should go, why would God do that? Yeah, I think it's the most obvious question that arises out of that text when you read that story. Absolutely. And I I think you're right. Like, we're being directed to ask that question because it's not in line with what we see of God's nature. Um, Jesus told us in in Luke 11 that God loves to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. The Holy Spirit is regularly spoken of in terms of having been promised. So John 14, Acts 2, for example, God has has promised the gift of the Holy Spirit, especially to those who have been baptized. And so why does he delay the gift of the Spirit in this case? What is he waiting for? Uh, whatever it is, it has to be pretty serious, right? And as the story continues, we read about the apostles Peter and John going out from Jerusalem to meet up with the Samaritans. And when they do that, something wonderful happens. It says in Acts 8, 17, then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. So these wonderful believers who had just received the Lord Jesus and been baptized, now, only now, at the laying on of the apostles' hands, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit that had been promised to them. And I think probably most of our listeners will be aware of the fact that Jews and Samaritans in biblical times did not have a great relationship. Uh, That's probably putting it a little bit mildly. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, what do you think would have happened if the Samaritans had received the gift of the Holy Spirit apart from the apostles in Jerusalem? Mm. The Samaritans would have had a claim to unity with Christ while at the same time remaining at enmity with the body of Christ. We would have had two independent churches who don't like each other with no tangible connection to one another, both claiming unity with the same Lord. And that is simply not an option. There's no such thing as an independent Christian community. The very idea of it is a contradiction of terms. There is one body and fellowship with that body is expressed through incorporation into the apostolic community that Christ established to be his witnesses. And 
you know, from this text, it seems that God feels so strongly about this that he will literally withhold his presence from an entire group of people until they receive the fellowship of the apostles. Yeah. The apostles tangibly hold the church together, and the successors of the apostles, bishops, do the same thing. Yeah. Part of the responsibility of bishops in holy orders is to continue to function in this role to hold the body together. Submission to apostolic authority ensures unity. Yeah. And I think we see this sort of orientation towards unity um, displayed throughout the threefold order as well. We talked a little bit last time um, about the unique office of the priest, that mm-hmm. they are given the authority to do some things like absolution that are not fitting for laity to do. And, you know, sometimes people ask about whether they're allowed to perform the Eucharist at home with their family or their friends, um, and they have a hard time understanding why only a priest is allowed to consecrate the elements. Yeah. And, you know, in addition to everything that we already talked about, I think, I think it is worth mentioning that restricting the celebration of the Eucharist to the priesthood is also a safeguard for the unity of the church. We need each other. The Christian faith is a communal religion. We're not, we're not monads. We're not just individuals. We are members of the body of Christ, fellow participants in Christ Jesus. And so the fact that you have to come and receive the Eucharist from someone else reinforces our interdependence. It, it is one safeguard for our unity. You know, when we think about what we do when we gather together, um, I think it's obvious that you can worship God anywhere. You can study God's word anywhere and at any time. If you could also validly perform the Eucharist at home, how many of us would simply do that? Yeah. Right? Why come together? Why admit that I need someone else if I can just do it all at home by myself? I'm totally self-sufficient. We, we get offended at the idea that there's something special about a particular group of people that God has set them apart and allows them to do things that I'm not allowed to do. But God does set people apart all through Scripture. And this notion that I can do it all and I don't need anybody else is so foreign to Christianity in the New Testament, but, but it seems to feed directly into our cultural dispositions. Mm-hmm. You know, how many people haven't come back to church since the COVID lockdowns. Yeah. Um, a a lot. lot. Yeah. Um, especially in churches that don't place a high value on the sacraments, because it seems to me that they're, they're living a form of Christianity that's, that's not truly embodied and that's not truly communal. And they realized, a lot of people realized that, hey, I can just watch church on TV without having to get dressed, without having to engage in the hard work of community. Mm-hmm. It's easier, sure, but... You know, it's hardly Christianity. At, at the center of the Christian faith is a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, a relational God, not a fully independent and autonomous entity, not a monad, but a relational God, a God who loves, a God who sacrifices for the other. The Christian faith is likewise a communal faith, and that means that not everybody gets to play every single role. We need each other by design, by God's design. Mm-hmm. We, we depend upon one another. And so the celebration of the Eucharist is reserved for the priestly class to reinforce our interdependence and facilitate our unity with one another. Yeah, I mean, there's so much that you just said there that's so important for us to grasp in order to understand why some of these restrictions are in place. 
you know, I think we hear restriction or we see it as a restriction. Right. And maybe that's an even better way of saying it is we see it as a restriction when in fact it is actually a structure that is built to contain unity, the whole body, everyone. It is to unify all. There's so many pieces to that. But I think, you know, what you just said, that line you just said, I, I just want to say it again, because I think it's so important for, for us to consider, think about, and hear again. You said the Christian faith is a communal faith, and that means that not everybody gets to play every role. Right. That's so important. And I think for anyone listening, thinking, well, this is what I've heard. So I, whether our listeners think this or not, yeah. <laughs> um, I've heard this consistently, is that when I, when I speak these things out to people as a priest, yeah. someone who gets to preside at the Eucharist, yeah, yeah. is how they see it. They think, yeah, but now priests get to do everything. Sure. And I don't. Yeah, easy for you to say. Yeah, easy for wrong. you to say, because yeah. <laughs> you're a priest and you get to do everything. But that would actually be a misunderstanding also. Right. Because holy orders is an order. It's an ordered way of life. It's something that we have taken vows to fulfill. So I actually don't, as a priest, have the liberties that the laity have. Neither do you as a deacon. Right. My life is ordered. Your life is ordered and restricted in a way that the rest of the church, the laity, don't have to be restricted to. Over time... I've come to realize that there is actually far more freedom in the life of the laity than there is in those that have had an ordered way of life put upon them or that they've chosen through vows. And so when I hear that not everybody gets to play every role, I actually think also about those in holy orders that try not to be. Right. That we took vows and those vows are very specific and we need to live in a certain way because of that. And we are under authority as well. And so there are ways in which that I have to function because I took vows to function that way. I, it's the same way that we would call a husband and wife to function towards one another. Right. There's just a restriction that happens when you've taken vows and you've chosen an ordered way of life in some way. It's the same thing that we would say also to Christians about those that live in the world. You know, don't compare yourself to those that live in the world because they actually have not said yes to Jesus. Right. And so we don't call them to the same life. Yeah, there, no. there is a legitimate double standard at play. A legitimate yeah. double standard, absolutely. Yeah. And it's a good thing to be restricted in some ways. It's a good thing for us to take up the way of Christ rather than not. Yeah. And um, if that's all that you're considering is, I want to be able to do everything, then of course it looks like a restriction instead of actually something that's propping up unity, that is a way of life that God uses to release blessing to the whole church. Right. So I, there's so much that you said there we could do, like a, I feel like we could have done a whole episode just on like those two yeah. you know, th- points. <laughs> I, um, did, I thought about that at one point, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but I think, yeah, rather than getting offended that yeah. you know, the priest gets to do this thing that I'm not allowed to do, yeah. I think it's good to think in terms of why has God set things up in this ordered way? Yeah. And, you know, what is the function of this and where is the blessing in this? That's right. Um, and at least one of the blessings is that it facilitates our union and That's right. helps us, forces us really to yeah. bond together and to be together. Yeah. Yeah. And and we do that. Naturally, personally, yeah. I'd rather stay at home. 
Yeah. <laughs> We're both introverts. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I need to be forced into yeah. true community yeah. and to depend upon other people. And those were some of the other points I thought as you were just, you know, speaking of that, I think that what we've come to over time is we've started to realize you can worship at home. You can read God's word anywhere, but it is hollow when it's only you. Yeah. Right. And so we would be ignoring the scriptures that say, do not forsake the assembly of, of the people of God. We'd be ignoring that. Well, I can worship at home. So why should I go yeah. be with the people of God? Well, or with my family, you know, because where two or three are gathered. Right. You know. <laughs> yeah. And you're, you're right. I think that that, you know, you were pointing at making so many good points that there is a there is a private sense to the Christian faith that or a personal sense. That's a better way of putting it. A personal sense that we can't lose. Yeah. God will meet with us personally. Sure. And so we can read scripture and should read scripture personally, but we should not forsake the public reading of scripture and the public teaching of scripture. We can privately worship but we should not forsake the public worship gathering. Yeah. And and the scriptures themselves, God himself calls us to that. Yeah. And so there has to be a both and and in what we're talking about here when we go into the uh, the reality of orders and some people doing things that others don't get to, that's just an outworking of the scriptures that talk about body parts. Right. Right? Yeah, you yeah. know, the the eye should not want to be the ear and exactly. the elbow and yeah. vice versa. Yeah. Now, just before we move on, I, th- I think there's one more quick note um, that's important to say. Apostolic succession is also a witness to continuity or unity through time. Remember, we talked about Irenaeus last time posting a public list of bishops to prove his connection to the apostles. Apostolic succession expresses that the one body of which we have all become a part existed long before our own conversion took place. Our faith is not subjective or individualized. This body that we have become a part of has one continuous life that we all share in, which is connected to the actual historical events in the life of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Right. The apostles and the bishops which succeed them are the visible link to those historic events. They are agents of unity and continuity. Right. So not just unity with, you know, our brothers and sisters in our, in our local parish. That's right. But also unity all going back through history to the apostles and to the yeah. early church. And Yeah, which so that connects to a heavenly unity, right? right? The unity go, that goes beyond just the world that we see, but includes that. Right. It's not just heavenly. It's not just earthly. It's both end. That's great. Um, yeah, so let's move on to sort of our second main point, which is that um, apostolic succession expresses and safeguards the message of the gospel. Um, so Ignatius says, let no man do anything connected with the church without the bishop so that everything that is done may be secure and valid. So the presence of the bishop or the oversight of a bishop ensures that whatever is happening in the church is valid. That, that's a big job. It's the, it's the bishop's job to ensure <laughs> that the gospel is preserved for the next generation. Yeah. So in preserving unity, the episcopate is also a safeguard to the very message of the gospel. 
The gospel is central to all that the church is and does, including its structure. It wasn't it wasn't an accident that the church organized itself in this way. It was an outworking of the gospel message. So you've you've mentioned the connection of apostolic succession to the gospel multiple times, and and I've said in other episodes, this is some of my favorite stuff that you teach on is seeing the gospel in these things. So how does the structure of apostolic succession reflect the gospel? Yeah, I think I think maybe the easiest way to see this is through an example. Yeah. And so, you know, let's talk about the Corinthians for a second. In in 1 Corinthians, Paul, uh, the apostle, that, that apostolic figure, is addressing a problem which is in part caused by individualization of the gifts of God. So the Corinthians were abusing the spiritual gifts to the detriment of the local church. So individual desires were being elevated above the corporate well-being of the community. And Paul's solution is largely to remind them of proper church order. So he esteems Christ, of course, as the foundation and the supreme head, and he reiterates the role of the apostles as being servants and ministers and officers of the church. And then he, he reaffirms their own place as members of the body of Christ under apostolic authority. Mm. And the end of this is that when the order of the church is compromised, when, when the individual is elevated above the corporate— then the very message of the gospel is distorted and deprived of its power. Right. So the Corinthians actually learned the gospel again by looking to the organizational structure of the church. Hmm. It, it's the place of Christ that must be exalted, not that of individuals, however gifted they might be. And it is the apostles or that apostolic office or bishops that preserve the integrity of the church's order and thereby safeguard and reflect the gospel message. Right. And within this apostolic structure, it seems to me that, that the roles themselves bear the marks of Christ. So as, as members of the body, the Corinthians are directed to love their brothers passionately and self-sacrificially, not unlike the way Christ has loved us. Right. Love for others takes precedence over love for self. Yeah. And our, our submission to apostolic authority is one of the ways that we express our love for the community and in a very practical way, obey our Lord Jesus. Mm. And the apostles, I mean, as much as the apostolic office is something that is honored and respected, I don't think it's something to be envied. Right. The, the <laughs> trials that Paul faced— were not unique to Paul, but but were common, even yeah. expected in apostolic ministry. Yeah, and in times of persecution throughout history, it's typically bishops who are the first martyrs. Yeah, and frankly, they should be. Yeah, they're supposed to be representing Christ to us, and so they are called to a life of sacrifice and suffering for the sake of the church. First mm-hmm. Corinthians four thirteen says, "We, uh, meaning the apostles." We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Hmm. Now, obviously, I'm not saying we should all go out and mistreat bishops every chance we get. (laughs) But there is a biblical expectation of suffering and sacrifice that accompanies the apostolic office. Yeah. So, So that apostolic or episcopal office 
is an office of humility and servitude, an office that willingly shares in the suffering of Christ for the sake of his glory and exaltation in the world. Mm. The order of the early church embodies the message of the gospel to such an extent that Paul can say, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And it has been a primary role of bishops through the ages to follow this tradition to safeguard and embody the gospel message. And notice as well that, that correction or church discipline only works because the church recognizes and is submitted to the authority of that apostolic office. Mm-hmm. Church discipline has has real consequences when you can't just walk down the street and go to another church. <laughs> and, and that's the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. Unity is the default state of the New Testament. And Holy Orders provides a structure for the accountability and true reconciliation that the epistles call us to in those matters of church discipline. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, as you're saying all of that, I, I'm so invested and in agreement with everything that you're talking about in, in all of these things and uh, really had my eyes open as I started to come into a historic understanding of our faith. But the one thing that keeps coming back, the, the question that keeps coming up is, what do we do with bad bishops, though? Right. Right? What yeah. do we do with those that aren't? actually following Jesus that can't be seen as a clear representation of Christ to us uh, when there is so much authority given to the role. And um, one of the most helpful uh, authors that I've found on this is uh, Ephraim Radner. He he wrote an article uh, essentially just called that, What Do We Do With Bad Bishops? And and it's... uh, a hilarious title uh, to an article, uh, knowing that he is an Anglican himself, um, and maybe uh, you know Anglican priest. Maybe he's got some an axe to grind, but that's not at all what was happening. Uh, phenomenal article. If you want to do more reading, uh, you can find it online. But he notes that until the 20th century, most of what's written about about the role and the practical duties of a bishop is actually about what you do with bad bishops. That right. we didn't really have, what does a bishop do other than what we see in scripture? What did the apostles do? Follow that sort of model. So bishops who have done wrong, who got out of line, or maybe are just acting unchristian, uh, would have to be dealt with in some way throughout church history. And we know that there are issues that you have to correct when you have people in roles of power. So when the church is reaching people and caring for those in need, uh, and the church is beginning to be talked about in a positive light, when uh, the church is beginning to be respected, it automatically means that people will be drawn to those positions. People who want leadership, who want fame, who want power in some way, are going to be drawn to that type of position. I'm not saying that they even know that about themselves. Yeah. Only that if there is a disposition within them to desire that type of thing, they will be drawn to try and gain that type of role. Right. So as you talked about, you know, with the, uh, the scum of the earth reference from Paul, throughout church history, that's not always been the case, right? Right. There was times where the church was in control of a lot of the world, yeah. and especially as the world was flourishing and developing, the church was right in there, 
And yep. so bishops gained a ton of power, and it would draw a certain type of person to those things. So when those sort of people begin to seek those places of leadership in the church, some will gain it. Not all of them, but some will end up gaining it. And inevitably, it will end with some significant issues. The thing I, I would like to say, this is not in the Radner article, is that this isn't a church issue. This is a people issue. Right. Anytime there are places of leadership that is respected, you're going to find sinful people seeking that out. Right. So that happens everywhere. It's not just in the church. But we have to be clear that, and we should recognize, and this is where I think some of the cultural shifts can help the church. I'm not always for cultural shifts. You, yeah. For those that know me, <laughs> won't, uh, won't be surprised by that. But when someone has that type of power in the church and they abuse it in any way or they hurt people, these, these sorts of problems can be cataclysmic. They can be so massive and hurt so many. Yep. The, the church is the bride of Christ. It, it is his body on, on the earth continuing his mission. And the bishop is the visible leader. As you said, the one is meant to point us to Christ, be a, a visible representation of who Christ is. And for that reason, people naturally, sometimes wrongly, conflate Jesus with that leader. It's not always wrong how they see the bishop, though. It can be very honest and very pure in how they see the bishop. There might not be any idolization or conflation of God and the bishop. They might just really respect that role and that person because of who they are and what they're doing in the church. And when that happens, to be someone who is then using that power against others, the issues are significant. And yeah. we have to recognize how much damage the church can cause because it's supposed to be different. Yeah. So as I said, it's not just a church issue. The problem is, is that we're not supposed to do what the rest of the world does. Right. And so it makes it a, a bigger issue. So in some ways, this kind of goes back to what you were saying earlier about, you know, how priests uh, or those in orders are, are called out to live a different kind of life. That's right. Um, and so what, what you're talking about here is what happens when they don't? Yeah. What happens when they pursue power and influence? Yeah. Just like, you know, people in the business world or That's whatever. Exactly right. And I think that what we have to do and what's been done throughout history, but in some ways why we need unity around a, a structure like apostolic succession yep. is that when we're under a bad bishop or a bad priest even or a bad leader, we have to do what the church has always done in the long run. I don't mean every individual situation, but yep. over its history. If there is failure in Christian life of that individual, you call them to repentance, yep. right? And anyone can call any Christian to repentance yep. when there's a failure of, of, in Christian life. That doesn't matter who it is, right? A lay person can call a clergy person. Uh, that is always yeah. the case. Makes it more difficult. It does. You know. Yeah, and we have to recognize yeah. that. That because Which is of why dynamics. The whole structure of accountability is important. That's like, right. Yeah. Your bishop is accountable to other bishops. That's right. Yeah. And so if you don't feel like you can do that, or if there's maybe it's not just a obvious Christian life issue, right? An obvious sin issue, but it's an oversight issue, you follow the structures of the church. A bishop is never a a lone entity. Yeah. So even if there's only one bishop in your diocese, uh, you go to the other bishops. There's a college or a house of bishops that exists 
specifically so that they are never acting alone, that they, it is not one bishop above the rest, but all together, working together to represent Christ. And so we always look to the structure that's in place and call out to the structure to help us when we can see that someone is acting outside of their vows or their orders or Christian life or whatever it might be. And now, so there's that, you know, they're really practical. You you talk to the other bishops or you, you know, you connect with the structure or whatever it is. But also before that happens, you know, sometimes it's a, it's not even necessarily something we know if we can call out, but it's hurt us internally, right? We can be, uh, someone say, you know, our, our feelings get hurt <laughs> or whatever, uh, but it's something maybe deeper than that. Um, we have to be careful that we're always looking to Christ as the head of the church, meaning we don't look to the man that's in the office. Yeah. So the office of bishop is there to point us. That's right, yeah. And it is persons that fill that office. And we have to be careful that we don't conflate that even. Yeah. Right? They should, as people, represent that office well, but they may not. Yeah. And so what we do with bad bishops is we recognize that people are sinful. Yeah. Christ is the head of the church, and this sinful person is not actually standing up into the position of the office as it is meant to be. And that helps differentiate as to what we can handle uh, but also how we see the people, right? And so I just think that we have to be careful with that as kind of a first step. You look to Christ as the head, and you see that the office is what points us to and signifies Christ, not just the individual or the man that's in the office itself. Yeah, which is one of the reasons that I think sometimes people ask, you know, if there's bad bishops anyways, well, then why don't we just throw out this whole structure? Right. Well, because the office itself is important, even if they're not fulfilling it properly. uh, The office points us to Christ. Yeah. The the office connects us with one another. Yeah. And so what you just said in Paul's, all of Paul's reasoning. Yeah. That's the office. Yeah. He's not talking about the people. He's talking about what it should be. Yeah. And this is where it all gets messy because, you know, we've been talking mostly through the last two episodes about um, a very idealistic picture. Yeah. This is what uh, the the scriptures envisioned. This is what the early church envisioned. And this is all that's great about it. And now it's like, okay, but what happens when you get real people involved? Yeah, that's right. (laughs) And there's there's always failings. Yeah, that's right. And I think personally, the, the place that we have to come back to consistently is that we consistently... Uh, seek out Christian virtue in our own life so that we know that we're moving forward in whatever we have to do rightly. So we have to be humble. We have to be submitted. We have to be seeking unity. We have to be not self-serving. All of those sorts of things. And that can be scary in a moment because if you have been wronged and you start asking those questions, it it can be very quick that you go, oh, I'm probably just self-serving. Uh, I, it's probably just all me. Yeah. But that's why we have the structure of the church. Yeah. You can go to the structure and say, maybe I'm being self-serving here. Maybe this is my problem. This is what this bishop or leader is doing. I'm submitting this to you. What would you have me do here? Yeah. Right? And Yeah, you kind of get a second opinion. Absolutely. And then somebody can evaluate the situation and say, right. oh, actually, yeah, I think 
I think this is your issue. Yeah. I think you need to repent in these ways. Yeah. And then you humbly accept that. Yeah. And move into repentance. Yeah. Or I think you're right. Thank you for raising this. Yeah. We'll take it from here. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. But you actually have to be humbly submitted in order to do that. Yeah. And that's where I think that some of the other structures, and I won't name specific structures because that's not the point of this episode, but where some of the other structures can can come up short is that yeah. if you actually look at I mean, the, we are actively saying that holy orders is better than other governance structures. So yeah, that's okay. we are. <laughs> and we've and and part of it is it's from our experience. We've been in we've been in others, right? It's not like we've only ever been a yeah. part of a holy order structure before. And and we've seen the faults in both. Yeah. You know, we have we have experience where we've seen fault in both. Sure. And and so I think that that's where the value of the scriptures comes from is that we can see the gospel message in this, and so we can't throw it all out just yep. because it's been done poorly. Yeah, exactly. Um, yep. And unfortunately, what happens, because other models aren't preservers of unity, but often come off the back of division, yep. the next step is, that one's wrong too, let's find a new one again. Yeah. And and it, it just sets you up for constant division and change, yeah, because every time there's a problem with a leader, you yeah. just go out and start a new church. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That has As, no accountability structure. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And until you are the person sitting at home. Yeah. <laughs> because you can't trust anyone. Yeah. Right? And that's different than I've been hurt. And I'm, I've, so if for anyone listening, it's like, oh no, they're, you know, on me about the fact that I'm the one sitting at home. First off, yeah, we would like you in church. Yeah. <laughs> we do believe it's necessary. But also, if you're at home because you've been hurt, my hope is is that you would see what we're talking about here and see that there is a way forward right. that preserves unity. Yeah. And not taking a step of division to separate yourself. Right. And that's really important because I think, you know, part of what you said in it is that it's not just it's not the people that fill the spots of holy orders or apostolic succession that preserves unity. It's not just that. Yeah. It's also the submission that we all have right. to that structure. Yeah. And so it actually takes all of us yeah. invested in that for it to actually work. Yeah. Um, and that's really difficult. And I think that we have to keep in mind that it's not just good bishops or, or uh, good priests or good deacons or even good laity that keeps this in order it's also the discipline of bad versions of those right discipline is necessary for the preservation of unity also right and and so that's that's also part of yeah it's also part of why we can't just separate and start something new again yeah right that you have to like the error has to be addressed absolutely Yeah. yeah for the health of the whole body yes yeah you know, there's that that Galatians talk is about the plumb line of the gospel. It, you have to correct back constantly, yeah. right? So even around these things, you have to, when someone's in a place they shouldn't be, right, and they're they're handling it wrong, or maybe they're in a place they should be and they're still handling it wrong. And they're sinful and they're they're hurting people. The discipline of that person is just as important as someone handling it right, because we are all sinful. Yeah. And so we all know that we are going to fall short. And God disciplines the ones he loves. So we shouldn't actually buck discipline, even in other ways than we feel like, even if we don't feel like that one's coming from God, <laughs> we should actually receive it from the Lord. 
yeah. and, and step into it in a repentive, humble, submitted manner. But again, it only really works if you can keep Jesus as the head. Yes. Yeah. Because if you put, if you've, if you have a leader that you've put in that spot, yeah. none of this is going to work. Yeah. Yeah. We always, always have to keep our focus on Jesus, which is what we talked about yeah. when we were talking through the sacramental side yeah. of it, that it's, it's not the person it's, it's Christ actually. That's right. Yeah. At some point, maybe we could have a talk about the role of the laity and maybe even the, the power of the laity. Mm. Things like, I mean, addressing these sorts of issues, yeah. I think is really key, yeah. but also things like, um, you know, when you think about the church councils, yeah. right, it's mostly bishops yeah. making decisions. Yeah writing out these formulations yeah. of the faith and all of those things. But it's not truly an ecumenical council until the laity have received it. Right. Right. There has to yeah. actually be a coming around yeah. to the laity. Yeah. And they're the ones ultimately that determine, right. did the bishops decide correctly at this <laughs> right. council? Right. And they can reject those findings yeah. or they can reject those formulations. Well and send the bishops right back to another council like well I, I, it's a beautiful picture when you actually when you actually believe that all are necessary right and i you know this you were there uh, when i was moving towards the priesthood it was the first time i really studied the priesthood of all believers and it convinced me of the role of the laity and the role of priests right that Studying the priesthood of all believers is was so empowering to me as a presbyter in Christ's church, as, as a priest in his church. But it was also so empowering to know that not all of it's my job. Right. Right? That yeah, the, yeah. The, the laity actually have to hold a significant amount of weight here. Yeah. And uh, a friend who's a priest, he was one of my, one of those that introduced me to Anglicanism. He always said he, he thinks of you know, four orders that there's bishop, priest, deacon, and laity. Right. And that they're all different, but they're all ordered lives. Yep. Right. And, and he's right. He's right. They're all ordered lives. And so, um, it's just such a beautiful picture, I think, to really consider what is our whole role. Yeah. And, and we have to, we have to, or else we get lopsided. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And, uh, very helpful, I think. Uh, I mean, I feel like we've just scratched the surface really, but yeah. um, hopefully through these last two episodes, we've given kind of at least a, a good overview of, you know, what do we mean when we're talking about holy orders and yeah. why is it important? Yeah. Um, so in the first episode, we, we gave a bit of a biblical and historical foundation for it. Um, and we talked about its sacramental character. And then today we've really tried to talk about how, Apostolic succession manifests and preserves unity and continuity in the body of Christ, as well as safeguarding and expressing the gospel message. Yeah, um, those are kind of our key takeaways, and then you know some pastoral considerations for you know what to do when real life hits, um, <laughs> <laughs> which is very helpful. Um, so yeah, thanks for chatting with me today. My pleasure, and thanks for listening, everybody. And we'll see you again. Hopefully soon.